think you've lost your love? Well, I saw her yesterday. It's you she's thinking of, and she told me what to say. She says she loves you. Yes. Yeah. Yes. She loves you. Yes. Yeah. Yes. She loves you. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. She said you hurt her so she almost lost her mind. Poor girl. And now she says she knows that you're not the hurting kind. She says she loves you. Yes. Yeah. Yes. She loves you. Yes. Yeah. Yes. She loves you. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh. Oh, yeah. Oh. You know... What? It's up to you. Is it? I think it's only fair. True. Pride can hurt you too. Apologise to her. I will not. Because she loves you. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. She loves you, Seamus. Does she? Oh, yeah. God, I love her too. Yeah. I do. She oh, does. God knows I love oh, her. Yeah. I do. I love that girl. Oh, God. I love that girl and I want to oh, her as quick as I can. This week's one day was fab. I'm Ed Chan, and I'm John Stone. We're, we're we're playing voices. COVID, you see, this man has decided to do this podcast while he is suffering from COVID. So listen through the whole thing. Well, that means you just have to talk more. <laughs> no, no, that's not my contract. This week we're talking about. 1965, Granada TV, The Music of Lennon and McCartney. Black and white, 60s television show. Firmly what I believe is was kind of the last gasp of Beatlemania. I mean, they, they were still that boy band, kind of, but it won't last past this. And now what? What has happened? Uh, yeah, it's a music of Lennon and McCartney thing, but poor George and Ringo get kind of minimized in this whole special. Yeah, more than minimized. At the beginning, they're kind of introduced as the Beatles, as being an act on the show. At the end, when they give everybody credit, they name everybody. Even the drummer for the organist gets a credit, but then it comes down to John and Paul. George and Ringo are not mentioned at all. 
George's resentment already starting to build. <laughs> yeah, you know, he was represented by the same publisher at that point. They could have snuck in, I need you, or... Uh, Don't bother me. You know, they could have. This is 1965. Well, I noticed that virtually everything that's in the special, even though it was taped on November 1st and 2nd, 1965, everything, with the exception of yesterday, is from 1964. So while this is going on, Rubber Soul is being recorded. The special was filmed on the 1st and 2nd. On the 3rd, they were in the studio recording Michelle. So the only reason John and Paul agreed to this special, they kind of felt they owed Johnny Hemp of Granada TV a favor. Johnny Hemp was the one who was at least partially behind getting the Beatles on national television. He was one of the folks who was behind the some other guy footage, the scene at 630 stuff. The Cavern Club footage, virtually Ringo's first gig. They kind of felt they owed this guy a favor. And I'm sure that Dick James took this as an opportunity. Yeah, boys, go on out there. Go on out there. Make this thing. There's a tone to the show. Certainly there were some acts that would have been popular with the kids. But a lot of what's on here on this special were people who were, for a slightly older audience, more cabaret. Well, even George Martin and his orchestra. He was on there. They have they have Henry Mancini and Fritz Spiegel. We'll get to them, but uh, there are some universal choices here. So it, it, it is an eclectic and interesting collection of artists. Yes, yes. I, I kind of wish more of them had been performing live. It, for the most part, they're miming all throughout this thing. We should take note that around this time, I mean, everyone's kind of familiar with the the British miming band, but that didn't happen until 1966. The issue had come in for years, acts on Top of the Pops had been miming. It hadn't been an issue, but apparently the British Musicians Union saw this as a threat and uh, took steps to, to curtail that. So let's go into the special. We start off with... A hokey logo. <laughs> you think it's hokey or you think it's just stereotypical 60s? Well, it looks like something that some ad executive might have come up y- with. Yes. I guess that's why I called it hokey. There wasn't anything cool about this at all. It's very much the sort of drum head you might have seen showing up on Bewitched for the <laughs> hip rock band. Yeah. It's like, well, boy, is this dated. Well, especially when you consider... The photo for Rubber Soul was on its way. Yeah. They'd never do anything like this again. But once we get past the logo and we get past action shots of most of the artists that are going to be in the special, they describe this as a variety show, which it kind of is. Yeah. It's not Carol Burnett. It's not too far afield from the Sonny and Cher show, or the <laughs> Captain and Tennille show, or you know any of the sort of things which were 
parodied so mercilessly in Walk Hard. And now, your host, Dewey Cox! Walk hard, 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 down line, rocky road, walk hold, hold, hard, hard, that's my creed, my goal. I've been scoring in this mouth and ridiculed too. Had to suffer every day my whole life. Yeah, it's weird because in the shows you mentioned, they would have had, you know, really good writers. And I don't know who wrote this show, but the jokes don't come very often. And when they do, they have kind of a, a Lennon bent to them. A couple of good lines. Well, they're few enough that we can actually go through them <laughs> in this show. All of the dialogue pretty much that John and Paul have. The four good lines. So the George Martin Orchestra start off with a medley here, which includes I Feel Fine, you know, nice enough. It's more or less the same thing we got from George Martin on his albums. He puts other things in it. It's not straight I Feel Fine, but I didn't really hear any other Beatles song in that. No, it's a medley with other things for sure. It, it was okay. It, it wasn't as good as his Hard Day's Night music. Although we do get a little bit of that in here yes. later on. Th this was not as good. Maybe he was busy at the studio recording Rubber Soul. Um, <laughs> well, and don't forget, Air Studios was just happening right at this time. <laughs> After reading... Uh, Ken Womack's book. It was successfully failing. <laughs> They're having some rough times getting it going. So in something, as you note, it seems like a lot of these pieces were filmed separately. We get a quick pan cut to John and Paul, uh, Paul with the drumstick, sort of vaguely tapping along on a cymbal. Yeah. Well, it looks like a good lineup for the show. Yes, but where's all the other people who've done our songs? Well, I think the way, musically, the way Martin ended the piece engendered kind of that you know, and it was John and Paul playing that. John sticks the drumstick in his pocket, and and Paul looks at him and starts to, and then no, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> now we get to the jokes. Uh, we get a little piece about some of the people who are not on the special that had done Lennon McCartney songs, and I think they actually go for big folks, particularly to a, an older audience. They start with the Stones. This almost seems like a double entendre. I. I don't know, uh, maybe. I wanna be your lover, I thought the Stones wrote that one themselves. No, we wrote that one, we're so high. Yeah, so right. high? 
it's the same joke you made on Markham and Wise, but those words? Yeah. Is it John being cheeky? I don't know. This is pure speculation on my part. But you, we also have to remember that in August, they had been in California and had taken the heaven and hell drug. And John was getting into it at this point. I'm not saying he was high on the show or anything. Despite me being the one who tends to speculate that, I don't think either of them are inebriated in any fashion during the filming of this show. No, but certainly it affects your outlook. <laughs> it might have been better if they had had a few of the uh, herbal <laughs> jazz cigarettes beforehand. <laughs> yeah, they might have been stoned that way. Uh, <laughs> but they mentioned some big names. A little clip of Can't Buy Me Love from Ella Fitzgerald, followed by a corny joke. Where's Ella Fitzgerald? She's on a world tour and won't be in England until next year. Oh, too bad. We've only got an hour. Right. Then uh, I saw her standing there from Anthony Newley. He wrote the music to Willy Wonka. And he was in um, that group of Lionel Bart and Brian Epstein, Anthony Newley. They all kind of ran together. Right. Anthony Newley and Joan Collins, Mr. and Mrs. Anthony Newley. I now know who he is. I didn't realize that he was actually a recording artist. Yes. He wrote music and recorded it. I'm trying to think. Everybody get on your phones and look up Anthony Newley, and that'll be interesting to watch that trend. But yeah, he did some work. The Candyman. Anthony Newley is trending for no apparent reason. Yeah, right. <laughs> this is bizarre. Twitter must be <laughs> shutting down because Anthony Newley is trending on Twitter. <laughs> That's the side of the apocalypse. Then they mentioned Russ Conway, who is big in Britain. Who did a cover for Me to You. Right. right. So Anthony Newley was on Broadway, and Russ Conway... He's not on Broadway. And then neither are Peter Gordon. <laughs> right. Which leads to Pinky and Perky. Ah, yes. Pinky and Perky. Which basically predated Alvin and the Chipmunks. And it's the same premise. They, it's tape that's very speed and, you know, very high uh, chipmunky kind of voices. Except Pinky and Perky with pigs. I thought you said Pinky and Perky. They also had characters which were the four Beatles. While I was preparing for this, I, I went and looked at a clip of Pinky and Perky doing all my loving. And Duke Box Jimmy. <laughs> They got two hits and two misses, and the deciding judges were their Beatles characters. It's not clear exactly what types of animals they are, but they actually do bear some resemblance to the Beatles. There's the mop tops and the suits. Right. From a historical perspective, it's interesting. It's a little bit dated. Even by 1965, it might have been a little bit dated. Are you talking Pinky and Perky? Well, I'm talking about the whole special, but Pinky oh. and Perky as part of this special. They began, I think, in the late 50s, 57, 58, which was about two years before um, Alvaro the Chipmunks. By the way, folks, American television steals a lot from British television. A lot. And this is basically what it is. It's just a, a child's act. Kids shows and pop music were actually much closer tied at the time. Right. And would remain so for probably another decade. Teenage music was not ever looked at as any kind of art, you know, any kind of pretensions. It was just, that's why they thought the, the Beatles would be like everybody else. They'd come and they'd go because they did it 
like clockwork. You know, people would come up and then disappear. That's not Peter and Gordon, is it? <laughs> right, right. I thought she said Pinky and Pecky. And then they mentioned Anna Blackman. So then they ask for World Without Love, and World Without Love comes on. It's Anna Blackman's version of World Without Love. Right. Please knock me away. I can only hear one of them. Is it Peter? Peter's the guy who lives across the hall from you, Paul. <laughs> but Gordon is the one with the, with the voice. Well, we'll ask Art Garfunkel <laughs> about that. <laughs> Paul has a go at him and get back. Woman, do you love me? Kind of taking the Mickey out. And he looked enough like John Lennon that he could have played John Lennon in a <laughs> 1960s version of Beatlemania. It could be. All of this to introduce Peter and Gordon. Well, how about Peter and Gordon? And well, so we get Peter and Gordon. Yeah. And, and you know, the thrill of being in a successful writing partnership is probably pretty cool. But we all know now that John thought that this particular song was ridiculous. Please lock me away. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know whether John hated the rest of the song or not, or if it was just that he could never get past the opening. Right. But, yes, you are correct. I've wondered before whether Paul's lyrics sometimes at that time were very, like a Hollywood musical, which are the things that John particularly did not like. He didn't like that sort of thing. So, you know, maybe he just thought that the lyrics were weak. Well, and you look at what Jim Mack was playing him, the whole... 20s era oh right 10 can music those lyrics are also disposable a lot of the time some of them yeah for sure i mean it was the same as as the moonlight turns to june light there are some lyrics that you go ooh, okay that's not to say he didn't become a very fine lyricist from peter and gordon we get the feel for how all of these mind performances are gonna go lots of walking around no mic stands at best you have artists sitting there and performing and they're surrounded by go-go dancers of various sorts and various <laughs> right. props roll in and out that's the movement if you didn't have them it would be really dead so the girls had to dance i will give gordon credit because he actually looks like he's playing the guitar part yeah peter and gordon had to go through any number of of issues during their time on television in his stage show on the history of peter and gordon peter asher plays this clip when they were on an american tv show from just about this time they had them in full hee-haw get up uh, the coveralls the whole thing and it's like uh, oh wow yeah it's funny but it's also like Okay, they were just happy to be dressed in their regular clothes and at least pretending to be performing. Right. It still goes on when when people go on a, a show and the writers of the show decide, hey, it would be funny or really good or whatever that we, we do that to that particular artist. But that doesn't necessarily help the artist at all. And back then, you kind of did what you were told. Now it's more like, <laughs> I'm not doing that. All the way up through like Solid Gold. You remember that show? Oh, yeah. Some of the mid-Soul Train and the Solid Gold, they had the performers uh, doing some pretty uh, unnatural things. Right. Or if you were an artist and you went on any of the 70s variety shows, you could end up looking like Raggedy Andy with Cher as Raggedy Ann. You know? And so for the rest of your life, you have to look back at the point when you're 
dressed up like Raggedy Andy. That's why I say at least Peter's getting out ahead of it by, yeah, that was us. <laughs> I'm telling our story. I'm playing you Peter and Gordon songs. And yeah, that actually happened. Yeah. So, all right. Lulu with, I saw him standing there. She's got a good, tough voice, you know? Yeah. And this is about two years before she did To Sir With Love, which is what she's really known for here. She was a bigger artist over in Britain. Yeah, there was a photo which came up on the internet earlier today, as a matter of fact, as we're recording it, of the female British artists of the time. And it's pretty amusing to look at. Lulu was a tougher Scylla. The girls had a harder time than the guys did at the back then for sure yeah then alan haven and tony crombie with a hard day's night This version is just the organist and a drummer, jazz drummer. And I'm listening to it, and it's okay. It's not outstanding. But he is the Joe Cocker of organists. He just kind of flails everywhere. His hands have to be on the keyboard, so his arms move and gyrate in strange positions. And I guess that would be entertaining to watch for about 30 seconds less than this song goes. <laughs> I watched this and I, and my thought on the version was, you know, I'll bet John Lennon hated this. <laughs> or stood off, off the stage and just made terrible fun of him. <laughs> he's being electrocuted. Hey, he's stealing my I'm down bit. <laughs> then John and Paul get another very brief bit here. Let's give them a big hand, and they outstretch their hands. Ha, 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 ha. <laughs> real, real cheesy. <laughs> right. Uh, then another weird version, Spitz Fregel's Baroque and Roll Ensemble with a medley including She Loves You and I'll Get You. In a classical form. It reminds me a little of the Baroque Beatles albums, which came out. That was yeah. around that time. It was around that time, you know, and... Uh... Uh, gosh, I remember my father bringing home a, a record from Germany that was uh, the Beatles done in a Baroque style. It has since been done much better, I think. Yeah. But was an early indication, or all this is to some degree, of how amazing the Beatle melodies were. Because they could be 
changed into almost any style. You couldn't do that with Heartbreak Hotel or Oh Boy. Well, and you'll notice that these are much more McCartney-heavy, the songs that people have chosen to put in the show. Right. World Without Love, saw her standing there, and here we get She Loves You and uh, I'll Get You. Those are Lennon songs. Hard Day's Night is 50-50, but it still seems more heavily McCartney-oriented. It will be coming up. The ensemble is all baroque up, you know, the powdered wigs. The We are we are being classical. <laughs> it's definitely a shtick. And uh, then they're surrounded by more go-go dancers in mod fashions. Right. There's a smash cut while Fritz Spiegel and his group are playing. They're very contained, legs properly crossed, tapping on their knees. They are dressed in sunglasses and hats. And then when he ends his last note, it immediately cuts to the riff from Day Tripper. And the girls turn to the opposite side of the camera. clothes change colors and the whole thing changes so it was a tricky cut for 1965 a little bit more than a crossfade yeah yeah then well we get the first beatles miming of the day they are doing day tripper no amps no leads no mics yeah we're miming again surrounded by go-go dancers i think that's what dates this special the worst is the go-go dancers well, the history of dance is really interesting to watch it develop because it has developed just like music. Back then, you know, you had choreographers and they worked things out, but they aren't the kind of dancing we have now, which is just so precise. And then it was a lot looser. And so the whole thing, to me, the modern eye, the dancing looks lazy. Okay, so that is the end of part one. Uh Granada was commercial, so there were commercials in between. We come back into part two. Paul singing yesterday. Yesterday, all my troubles seem so far away. Now it looks as though they're here to stay. Oh, I believe in yesterday. heavily verbed his vocal gets progressively more heavily reverbed as he goes through he only gets to sing or mime to a single verse right because he's transitioning into marianne well is it a transition or is it just <laughs> we're going to go into a different key now it's an odd shift <laughs> you're not really complimentary keys but yeah it changes and Marianne sings yesterday. Because she had just done the record, and she's not heavily echoed. Right. 
it, I don't know what to say about this performance or this bit of video. It's not knockout, put it that way. It's, you know, it's bland, listless. I always thought that her version of As Tears Go By is just kind of, eh, you know, it's like a schoolgirl singing. Uh, what I will say is that Ed Sullivan did the same idea much better. He did a Beatles special in 1970. This was when the Two of Us video premiered in the United States. And how is it related to this? The songs of the Beatles, and he did, like, the Muppets, lots of other artists doing Beatles songs. But one of them was... You know, one of the most beautiful and best-known Beatles songs yesterday was first performed in America by Paul McCartney. And joining him tonight, here is Diane Warwick and Peggy Lee. Yesterday, all my troubles seem so far Now it looks as though they're here to stay Oh, I believe in yesterday Suddenly, I'm not half the man I used to be There's a shadow two female artists intercut with Paul, and then they sort of mix the three of them together for a rough trio at the end of it. So, I mean, it's the same idea as what's being done here. Nothing new under the sun. I don't know if you'd seen this special or not, but it's just kind of interesting from that historical perspective. After her performance, they begin to discuss the different languages in which their songs were done. What other languages have we been done in? Hmm. Not recognizing what languages they were. It's not Italian. No, German. French? Italian. German? French. Wir warten gut, das nicht. 
Och han har jobbat som en hund. Swedish. Swedish. So I bet you don't get the next one. It's almost a funny comedy bit. It's kind of like the one at the top. There's a lot of scaffolding on this set. Uh, there's stairs and scaffolding seems to be more or less all they could afford for this set. And so what do they feature? They feature John and Paul climbing around scaffolding and going up and down stairs. Right. I like the bouncing ball that they start with. Uh, what song is it in Japanese? Can't Buy Me Love. It starts in Japanese and they play bits of other languages. I guess the joke being that Paul is reading ahead one because he's always guessing the next language. Could be, I guess. Or that, you know, the joke is he doesn't understand any of it. He's always precisely one ahead. Right. And the next version that they play is, is the Beatles' own version of She Loves You. Zilibje. Bet you don't get the next one. They did Please Please Me in Italian. They did All My Loving in French. Hard Day's Night in Swedish. And then she loves you with the flamenco dance. And now we get, again, part of the reason why I think the joke may have been Paul was reading ahead. Paul actually has the card in his hand now after uh, the song finishes. Aha. Uh-huh. And, and he's reading off the card. John, did we ever write a song called, uh, uh, what? Samon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm not you, even going to try and say it. Yeah. Uh, COVID keeps you from doing it. Uh, but I can't either. So. And of course, they don't recognize it. John, did we write a song called "Ses Mos Quan Ubli on No, Paul. It says here we did. Things we said today. It's uh, by a French artist. Well, who sings it, Paul? Dick Rivers. And then John just goes into his accent. Oh, you mean Dick Rivers? Kind of like from two of us last week. That's one of those things that leads me to believe perhaps there was something in Dick Rivers' career that would make that funny to the audience. Ah, Dick Rivers. So we, we go out of that into another artist that they actually knew, uh, Billy J. Kramer with uh, Bad to Me. It was odd to me that they would put those two together because Dick Rivers basically set up what Billy J. Kramer was going to do, which is they both just kind of walked around. Here's this figure, young boy, basically, walking around the scaffolding. Could have put something, more dancers. <laughs> For Dick Rivers to do things we said today, the song he did, you know, really kind of illustrated the different impact that different melodies had in parts of the world. His version of that song just sounds really kind of Frenchy. The melody really worked with that style of music. So. And this was years before world music. Yes. Absolutely. Then we cut to John and Paul getting ready to do another introduction. Paul. We couldn't possibly do a show without the wonderful and talented Thingy. Thingy. Scylla walks in and she... Hey, I'm watching you on the... She's watching us on the... You're a lovely girl, Scylla. You're a lovely girl.
Yeah. They clearly have a, a really good relationship with each other. Of course, she does It's For You, which in America was a known song. I never even knew that song until Three Dog Night did it years later. And I was surprised. Oh, my God, it's a Linda McCartney song. At the very end, when she finishes, she's you know kind of crouched down between John and Paul. And John says something to her just as the camera is fading away. And she just cracks up. They clearly have this, you know, close relationship, uh, humor. John could say anything to her. Yeah. They'd known each other for two or three years, and they'd been on the same circuit for a little while. And, of course, Brian. Right. You know, it it may very well have been something about Brian. But I do kind of like that, and that they do actually have the interaction. Uh, And the walking up the stairs is actually not a bad video clip. You know, there's some movement to it, and her miming is good enough. That ends part two. Uh, we go out, we come back to part three. Logically. Here's where we get the Hard Day's Night music. This is the piece that actually everybody remembers from the, the score music for Hard Day's Night, the Ringo's theme. Yeah, you know, for a couple of reasons. One, it's, it's really good. And two, that was the scene of Ringo walking along the canal. So it was really spotlighted in the film. When I saw this section, I thought, okay, this is the last bit. It's for the adults. <laughs> you know, it starts off with George Martin and his Hard Day's Night theme. And then we go to a very popular personality at the time, Henry Mancini. Or as Paul refers to him, Hank. One of the composers that John and I admire very much is Henry Mancini, known better to his friends as Hank. Ready, Henry? Ready, John. What is the joke? The, the joke was, Paul said, here, the next person is Henry Mancini. His friends call him Hank. And then he says, are you ready, Henry? So clearly, that kind of is like, you know, we're not really friends. Because he doesn't call him Hank. He calls him Henry. And then Mancini responds to, you know, ready, John. So they're playing with each other. If it needs to be explained, it's not a great joke, I guess. <laughs> right. But that's the joke. So Mancini gets to talk a little bit. Uh, again, this is what we were saying about that Dick James is trying to sell the catalog further to the adults. So, so Henry Mancini talks about this wonderful and vast catalog that Lennon and McCartney have written. And out of a viewing audience, who's going to really want to hear about the catalog? I mean... Sure, it's a thing, but... I'm very happy that the boys asked me to come by to be on the show. And from their vast catalog, I've picked one that I think is especially beautiful. It's called If I Fell. think the message of this to a degree is to show what talented composers Leonard McCartney are and Mancini who had a lot of respect in the industry I mean he wrote Moon River and Peter Gunn that nobody now remembers but he was really big and very respected and so him kind of effusing over John and Paul was you know an indication that like you know, these are people who deserve your respect. And we can't understate the value of the Peter Gunn theme. Paul 
has always loved it. On one of the Star Club versions of Saul standing there, George actually goes into a little bit of Peter <laughs> That's cool. More recently, that was part of their version of Coming Up, was just a little bit of the... He also did a song called Baby Elephant Walk. I don't know if anybody remembers that, but it was... That's a wedding song you still hear on occasion. Wow. Yeah. So he, he wrote a lot of, you know, film music and was well-respected. So, and then to continue the joke, John closes it out. Uh, thank you, Hank, sir. Hank, sir. Hank, really? sir? Or is it Hank, sir? Well, I don't know. If it has to be explained. I thought he was calling him Hank, sir, like being being polite to him. But uh, Hankster, could, it could be that as well. A forever mystery. John being earnest. The next person we've got on the show is somebody who's done one of the best versions of one of our songs ever. Well, that's what me and Paul think. And George and Ringo. You know, all this time we've been ignoring poor George and Ringo. <laughs> yeah, we'll mention them at least once. And here she is, Miss Esther Phillips. Esther Phillips does a, actually a pretty stunning version, man. I love him. I really like this one. Yeah, it kind of stands above. They mentioned it earlier, but, you know, Ella Fitzgerald did a great cover. So their stuff really transferred to other styles. This is a good version. And this is all pre-Rubber Soul. The way things have gone, people tend to slightly disregard everything pre-Rubber Soul. And this special alone yeah. highlights... They were be already kind of being taken seriously. They were already first-class songwriters before we even get to what are the classics of all time. But again, looking through this, the only song from 1965 is Yesterday. Everything else is earlier. Than Except for the two Beatles songs, of course. Well, yeah, they're plugging their single. We're back to John and Paul, and they get to introduce Peter Sellers. <laughs> uh, what's all this, John? It's Peter Sellers. It has been a hard day's night. And I have been working like a dog. It's been a hard day's night. I should be sleeping like a log. Peter Sellers recorded a bunch of different versions of Beatles songs in various funny voices. Did Martin do the, all of those? I think he did most of them. These are studio recordings, which he's miming to. Yes, I just didn't know whether he was involved in the production. Yeah, he worked with Peter Sellers in his earlier career and did a, a, a record with Sophia Loren. The funniest one of these 
which they never could have used as a German Nazi torture version of She Loves You. She said, you hurt her so. Good. She almost lost her mind. Good, it's good. <laughs> and now she says, she knows that you're not the hurting kind. I am. She says she loves you. Yeah? 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 She loves you? Yeah? 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 She loves you? Yeah! 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 <laughs> it was on YouTube. I don't know if it still is. Yeah. But the audio is out there. Yeah, I, I heard that. That's... <laughs> Like I say, he did have a dozen different ones, and then they just let them choose from that. Right. It ends with the Beatles miming to We Can Work It Out, as you say, plugging the latest single. Right. John on harmonium. We close out with the uh, instrumental I Want to Hold Your Hand over the closing credits. Is that the George Martin version? I forgot. I think it is, yeah. Yeah. So he made sure he made his nut. <laughs> well, he deserved it. You know, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. He did that instead of putting his song on B-sides. <laughs> right. And EMI owed him money anyway. So. And so what was the value of the music of Lennon and McCartney? To a great extent, it's kind of a slightly forgotten piece. They're never going to release this thing on video. Who knows what they decide? Somebody get the rights to it and decide to clean it up. And Does Apple own the rights to it? I, I don't know. Could be. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised because they spent several years acquiring various properties. And it could be one of them. Try to see it my way. Only time will tell if I am right or I am wrong. We Can Work It Out was yet more proof of the musical genius of the Beatles. A band always bringing new sounds to pop. This time, the novelty was John playing the harmonium, a kind of portable church organ, more associated at the time with early Coronation Street battle axe Ina Sharples. And when the Beatles made a TV special at Granada where Corrie was filmed, the two worlds collided with John playing Ina's actual harmonium. They were lads that watched television and they loved Coronation Street. Been on for five years by that time. He was delighted to do that. And it was a very good publicity point for us. The only stuff that Apple doesn't seem to own are the stuff that Dave Clark owns. All the Ready, Steady, Go stuff. I mean, they still don't own around the Beatles. That was Jack Good, right? Yeah, I wanted to go back to Mary McCartney's If These Walls Could Sing. I, I've been reading a lot of more strongly negative reviews of it. I, I mean, we both kind of think it was okay, but not the greatest thing in the world. Yeah, some interesting parts, but on the whole, it's not something I would search out. But I think what it's missing is a real understanding of the inner workings of a recording studio. Right. It's much more personality-driven. And that is definitely to its detriment. Well, if you're going to do a documentary about a place, 
you have to include more of the place rather than the people who came there. Far too much of what they actually say in the doc is just, oh, this room is magical. Well, define what that means. Tell us. You know, I can sort of understand the stuff at the end of the doc where they go on about, oh, well, they don't even want to repaint because they're afraid it will change the nature of the room. But that's not really telling us anything about EMI, the studio. I would disagree. I would say, yeah, that's actually kind of a fascinating little thing. But it's one little thing. Pile on a bunch more of those sort of things. That would be more interesting than, you know, there's just not enough of that in there. Nile Rogers has an interesting quote. People don't believe it was just done by accident. They think there's some magical thing in Abbey Road. However, artists are superstitious and a lot of bonding happens almost instantly. Abbey Road is a great leveler. Now, I mean, as someone who's familiar with recording studios and recording studio technology, that makes a lot of sense, don't you think? Yeah, I know that there's a lot of superstition in show business, so that sort of thing I'm not surprised at. And the fact that really, at least nowadays, it seems that anyone who goes into that building who's not a punter, and I mean, you you do still have the occasional punter that they'll rent out studio time to because they're rich enough to go in and want to record something in Abbey Road Studios for themselves. Any serious musician who goes in there and pays for the time knows the history of the building. And they don't want to be the one who released something crap from Abbey Road. Right, for sure. But, you know, it's weird that they talk about being superstitious about repainting the walls and that somehow you know, affecting the sound. But I would say, well, what about all the equipment you sold off? I mean, that's part of it too. It's not one thing. It's a bunch of things. That's something that Mary had access to, and I kind of wish she'd done. I mean, Paul has shown off the Mellotron. He showed off bits and pieces of what he bought from Abbey Road and installed into Hogs Hill. I would have been fascinated if you're going to talk to Paul Go and talk to him in Hogs Hill. Show off the studio. Show off the equipment he got from Abbey Road. I don't, I don't know why she made that choice other than, you know, maybe feeling like, well, this is a, a thing about Abbey Road. And then I'd end up at Dad's studio, showed off equipment he bought from there. You know, I don't know. I don't know why she made that decision. Well, but I mean, when she's talking about things inside of Abbey Road, you know, we get like two sentences on the boffins and, you know, as we know, those are the guys. Paul says some nice things about them, but I would have loved a bit more than just, oh, what's going on? Oh, we have a microphone, a 40-year-old microphone with the broken tube. Someone dropped it. And that's kind of all we get. Oh, people come to me because I can fix things. How do you fix things? Where do you get the pieces for all of the ancient yet super important equipment and how do you know what you can just glue back together or you actually have to go find or build i mean you know now that it's the era of being able to go and make any metal piece you want and a metal works for fairly cheap is 3d technology something that's regularly being used in abbey road so there was one story in there that i thought was kind of fascinating which was the story of Linda bringing their pony into the studio. 
Jet. We're going to talk to Alan Cozen about that next week. It's also in the McCartney legacy. It's amazing what Paul got away with in his house on Cavendish. Right. There's actually a picture of, of them bringing Jet the Pony across the crosswalk. Apparently, he actually went inside Abbey Road. Well, that was my understanding. Who was charged of taking care of the pony, I wonder? You know, I don't know. And I guess it's an illustration of how much EMI had changed. But, you know, I can't imagine uh, someone just going, oh, this is my pony. I'm bringing him in. Well, anybody probably couldn't have done that. If you're Paul McCartney, you want to shoot an arrow through the studio? You want to shoot blanks in the studio? Go right ahead. Arrogant bastard. (laughs) <laughs> the the part that really got me i thought was the best footage in there was the uh bit with uh Scylla black and burt Bacharach. yeah but they spent so much of that time talking about brian epstein again you talk about it's a beatles connection but brian wasn't really anything to do with abbey road other than he and george martin worked very closely to build up the release schedule and the recording schedule for all the artists. Right. Did Brian record Roy Storm the Hurricanes at Abbey Road? That question just struck me. Everybody, answer that in the comments below. America is a, a musical song. Yeah, that's from uh, West Side Story. And supposedly Ringo was actually at that session. Brian produced it. Uh, it doesn't say where it was recorded. Uh, uh, it was released on Parlophone, so. Aha, uh-huh. well, there you go. It is not produced by George Martin. Even if Brian produced the Roy Storm record, his relationship with EMI and the building doesn't deserve the number of minutes he gets in the special. Right. And I mean, particularly, you know, later on when you get kind of what's a watered down Beatles history from, from the white album to Abbey road, which starts off with Brian's death. I don't necessarily know that we needed all of that. A better way for her to do this might've been to cover just specific recording sessions or sets of recording sessions. What's it all about? But it was ever so difficult because the range in it was unbelievably hard. So when I started the song in the soft voice, it was awfully difficult to get all that energy up from literally from my boots to really go for that high note. It was hurting me. I was hurting. It's your feeling better out there. My goodness. I want to go on that all night though. I'm hard on the singer. I don't think she knew it hit her. We must have gone 28, 29 takes with her. Had it up early, but I kept going, can we get better than that? Can I get one more? That'll be a little bit more. A little bit more, a little better. Just some magic. The Alfie and Burt Backrack stuff, that's actually probably other than the 1931 stuff from the opening of Abbey Road, some of the more interesting candid footage recorded in the studio. Yeah, true. Although you, know, you got to figure... There was other stuff recorded over the years. 
that they did. I mean, Pink Floyd stuff and and uh, Kate Bush stuff. That's just of the artists they covered. Lots of people have recorded lots of things in Abbey Road. That cellist, that was an interesting story. Have you seen that movie? No. That was based on uh, uh, Jacqueline Dupree, the Hillary and Jackie film? I hear it's good. She was a brilliant artist, and she did record important work at Abbey Road. But it also seems like you put it in there to add a little bit of tragedy. Right. Oh, she, she got MS. That's a real shame. You compare this to something like George Martin's uh, biography where he's talking about air studios. A much better job is done in explaining why the artists recorded there and how it affected their sound. What was so special about, I mean, you've alluded to it, but what was so special about Air Studios Montserrat? Um, I mean, what did specific, specifically did George Martin create there that produced all this I great music? I feel like it was really special as a studio because of the remoteness and the isolation. Um, I think when I was interviewing Martin Offler, he was talking about how Air London, you know, had a great energy because it was in the middle of Oxford Circus and yeah. you'd go in there and Paul McCartney would be recording in one studio and Duran Duran, there'd be a whole bunch of activity going on um, and you'd just walk outside and be in the heart of London. So I think, you know, this place was special because it was so remote and I think especially taking artists away who are so in the public and the spotlight and, um, you know, they have so much other kind of external things that are thrown at them all the time. He just really wanted to create a space where people could, you know, essentially be creative, um, mm. which, as, as we see in the film, you know, works for some people and really doesn't work for other people. Now, my proposition to you, which I think might have made this film a lot better, what if Mary had picked up Sean as a collaborator on the film? Sean is a studio rat. He understands inherently the business of what goes on in a studio right. and how recording actually works. Yes, it's the play off the Lennon-McCartney thing, but <laughs> their commonalities overlap and their differences overlap. There may be an aspect of we see them as a family and they're not really. You know, the Beatles as a whole may get together for an event here or there or a reunion but they don't really think of each other as family. You know, I'll call up Sean and see if he wants to work. Uh, perhaps not, but I mean, just given the nature of this thing, upon reflection, that seems like that would have resulted in a better piece of work. Uh, yeah. One thing that someone did mention, which I think is probably true, is that this may be the last documentary on EMI we get unless one of two things happen. I mean, uh, years from now, when we're all too old to appreciate it, they'll do another one. Or when they tear the studio down, which is still, to a certain extent, a possibility. I would be really surprised. I mean, the way uh, England takes care of its history, they're not going to tear that down. You think it's earned enough historical perspective to keep it going but that doesn't mean it'll keep going as an operating studio no wouldn't have to you think they'll just turn it into a museum at some point yeah good i could certainly see that happening but still i mean are we ever going to get a good documentary does the existence of if these walls could sing mean that someone else won't try it and it might it might 
because you'd really have to have some unique viewpoint. I mean, unless on. someone just does a really good book on it. If someone does a book which captures all the highs and lows of being in a recording studio. Well, I think John's got a lock on the highs. <laughs> I've affected you too much, haven't I? <laughs> and I'm not even, I don't even claim, make that claim all that often. <laughs> Occasionally, but not that often. Yeah, but well. uh, I could see someone actually getting it right in a book. I mean, especially since we seem to be moving towards these deep dives into micro stories. Yeah, I mean that that would be the way it would probably have to happen. Is that someone would write a book and then a filmmaker read it and go, "Wow, there's something here that I I could do a film about." Um, but I, I just don't see a filmmaker saying. I, I mean, even Sir Joe, there might be a story there. A made-for-TV movie, maybe. <laughs> that w- would not be a theatrical release, but that could certainly be like a Netflix, yeah, uh, you know, five to eight-part miniseries. An eight-part miniseries on Sir Joe? Wow. Well, Sir Joe, EMI, and the... And his connection with Brian Epstein. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. A whole episode on... Brian Epstein trying to uh, seduce Sergio. No, 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 we we won't go there. We're not going to start a whole new set of rumors. I still think we tend to agree it's not a terrible film. It's just not a particularly good one. Yeah, it so. would fall comfortably in the middle of a list, you know. Yeah, I'd put it a little bit lower than the middle, but again, it's not anywhere near the bottom. Right. Anyway, all right, so there we go. Two Beatles projects, one of which we look upon fondly, although we realize it isn't all that great. <laughs> uh, oh, you had a story about your mom and the music of Leonard McCartney. Oh, well, it, just, it was just, uh, you know, being a, a Beatle fan at the time, my mom, uh, who was involved in the symphony, they were hosting Henry Mancini to come play. And being an officer in the, the orchestra, uh, mom got a press kit. And in that press kit was a picture of John and Paul sitting on a couch with Hank Mancini there happily talking. And uh, uh, that was a prized photograph of mine for a long time because you know, nobody had it hardly. It was in a press kit. Um, it wasn't published in magazines that I ever found. And so that was a big part. <laughs> but did your mom call him Hank? <laughs> you know, I never asked because the show wasn't available until the internet. Well, oh, well, there was no internet at the time. Literally, no. there was no internet at the time. No, I had no idea what it was even from because that wasn't covered in the press kit itself, you know, that he was on this TV show. So I had no idea where the photograph came from as, as far as when I kind of made an assumption. It was when they were out in LA, but, and it does definitely feel like the last gasp of Beelmania. Yeah. As you call it. They did. They didn't do anything like this ever again. And uh, they didn't want to be there. Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, I think there's probably a reason why 
George and Ringo are represented as little as they have to be. We're not standing around reading crummy lines. It's your music. It's not us. <laughs> right. And in their lives, this is the, the time when John is really getting into LSD. And uh, it's becoming part of his life. And that affects your viewpoint, your outlook. And uh, I just, you know, he wasn't going to do this kind of thing anymore. The doors of perception is. There you go. Somebody once called them. All right. Next week, a very special show. Alan Cozen, author of The McCartney Legacy, will be joining us. And we are going to talk about the 700 pages of The McCartney Legacy. Paul McCartney, 1969 through 1974. There are a few pages I don't think we need to cover, but we will be you covering You think? Them. Yeah. Oh, I mean, well. just, you know. But there are more than 700 pages, so. <laughs> so right. even if we skip a few. Well, well, we'll talk about all the really, really good parts. I mean, it's a great, it's a really good book, so. <laughs> all right. Very good. We will be back next week with that, and we will talk to you soon. And hopefully Ed will be recovered. Hopefully. Thanks, can, folks. Thanks for your good wishes. Can I do all this and not get a hit? <laughs> Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we could be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Beast of Famine Studios, San Francisco, California. We lived close by, as you know, and um, we had this little pony called Jet. And she just loved horses so much that we were coming over here to do something. She just brought Jet. And so there's a picture of her, him doing the, the, the level crossing. And he came into the studio. I don't think he disgraced himself. back here with wings mm. do you remember making a decision thinking i could go anywhere but i'm actually going to do this next phase in my musical career in the same studio yeah i mean in london we had used other studios besides abbey road but we always liked this the best so that when i was looking to record with wings i thought well this is the best studio i know it i know a lot of the people here and a lot of them were still here, a lot of them still are. <laughs> well, I just can't get enough of that sweet stuff my little lady gets behind. Yeah. It's just a great studio. You know, all the microphones work. I mean, that sounds silly to say, but you can go to some studios where they don't. 
So it was great. It was great to come back on. I tell you one thing, there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals, but they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're, they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going. Turned up nice again. <laughs>